Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that is, it is one thing to love to preach. It is another to love to the people you preach to. And that's why it's an honor and a joy, because I, I love you guys. I love getting up here, leading you, uh, opening up God's word, worshiping with you, as well as trying to present you, as Paul says at the end of Colossians 1, present you mature in Christ. And so that's my hope this morning as we open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, um, is to be able to help lay that foundation of presenting you as mature in Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to this book. Uh, this is the new series we're going to be jumping into for the springtime, um, taking a look at Solomon's words, um, answering the question, what is the meaning of life? And I think the great question that he asks is not so much what's the meaning of life, but is there life before death? Oftentimes we ask the question, is there life after death? But Solomon seeks to answer the question, is there life before death? And what does it mean? So we're going to take a look at that. So if you're familiar or not familiar with the Bible, uh, if you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, it's right after Proverbs, and it's right before the Song of Solomon. Um, it is what we would consider the wisdom literature, uh, made up of five books, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And so as you guys are opening to this chapter, I want to give you a little bit of background before we jump in, as well as answer the question why I'm excited to see where we're going with this book and why I love the book of Ecclesiastes and how it still speaks to us today. So a little bit of background. First, you'll see in the couple of verses, the author introduces himself as the preacher. Now, his name in Hebrew is Koeleth, and it means preacher or gatherer. And so we see here a man who most Jewish history or Jewish tradition would tell us is Solomon. Um, after studying some information this week, it, there are some interesting theories that it may not be him, but for the sake of this morning and the rest of our series, we're just going to consider that it is Solomon, because that's what history would tell us. Um, and so Solomon is a preacher, is a gatherer, and here he is bringing people together, or for the Greek term ekklesia, or where we get our word ecclesiastes from, to preach on this conclusion of life that he has come to. So as most wisdom literature would teach us, what he comes to the conclusion is this, that the end of man is to fear God and to obey his commandments. And so like most wisdom literature, how we become wise is to fear the Lord and to obey his commands. And this is what we see at the end of this book as Solomon writes these words. And so the reason that I love where we're going and what we are setting out to do in this book is a couple of reasons. First and foremost, Ecclesiastes teaches us that there is joy in the mundane. And I think that's important for us today because we live in this world where we want so much at the immediate time, right? We want so much right now. We have this popcorn ideology of how things are supposed to come to us instead of recognizing that there is joy in the mundane or the ordinary, and we should celebrate that. So Ecclesiastes points us to this joy. It also teaches us 
that life is meaningless without God. Whether it is our search for wisdom or knowledge or pleasure or wealth or honor, all the things that Solomon seeks to engage with, it is meaningless without God. This may be a little bit of a downer, but bear with me on this. Ecclesiastes brings us to the conclusion that the great equalizer of man is death. That's a great thing to just kind of jump into on Sunday morning, right? (laughs) We're going to talk about death. Let's celebrate it. But this is what Solomon teaches us. He teaches us that the great equalizer of both man and women is death. And oftentimes we don't like to think about that. We don't like to think about our reality, our own mortality. T.S. Eliot would write that mankind cannot bear much reality. And this is what Ecclesiastes teaches us about who we are. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in our society, we do everything we can to avoid thinking about that truth, thinking about our own mortality. Just a quick Google search this week, just looking at mortality and the definition of it, the first thing that popped up was 100 ways to avoid death. And I was like, well, I'm going there. So I want to read you some of the interesting things that I found. The first, this is literally the first point in this list. It says, don't take ashes out of a fire between Christmas and New Year's. Now, granted, it's a little weird between those times anyway. You kind of don't really know where you're going and what you're doing between Christmas and New Year's, so it's probably good to not mess with fire. I can get that, maybe. The next point was never place a broom on a bed. I don't, I don't know. This is how to avoid death. Don't put brooms on beds. Never, on to the, never add on to the back of your house. That's, and there goes the deck that I wanted to put on the back. Never drive a nail after sunset. Now, this one I can understand because I have plenty of pictures Dwayne has sent me of nails through the side of his fingers, and I know he's working at night. So... <laughs> Maybe that is a good point to avoid death. Avoid taking axes, shovels, sharp objects through the house. Here's the qualifier, though. If you do, make sure you take it back out the same door you came in. So you can only go in one door and come back out with sharp objects. And finally, and I think this one is actually pertinent to us uh, because we do like to make our own things. Never make your own wedding dress. Here's the reason. A woman who makes her own wedding dress will never live to wear it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is a list. hundred things, right? How to avoid death. Don't make your own wedding dress. Now, these are a bit crazy. I recognize that. But we do consciously and sometimes unconsciously try to avoid this truth about our own mortality. We have makeup that seeks to make our skin look younger so that we can appear as if we are not as old as we are because what do wrinkles show us that we're getting older and death is coming. We have hair color that seeks to turn our hair away from the gray and away from the white because we don't want to look like we are getting older. This is all a form of trying to mask the truth about our mortality 
which is interesting, Jonathan Edwards in one of his resolutions resolved to go to a cemetery at least once or twice a year to think about the business of mortality. I will admit I do the same. And in fact, we actually took a couple years ago, Dwayne and I took our leadership team to the cemetery. It's a, it's a weird place to go to kind of hang out, but it helps think about, as Dwayne talked about last week, that dash between our years. To think about and to engage with the life, the here and now. Because when we have a good mind about our mortality, it can help us enjoy the good gifts that God has given us here. Because this is what Solomon points out, is that all is vanity except the good gifts that God has given us. And so all, of, all in life is vanity except these good gifts of food and drink and community and good labor. So enjoy these things while you're here. Don't make much of them or place them in a idolistic place where they can't bear the weight that they're supposed to. But enjoy them because this is all that life has to offer. So this is why I'm excited to jump into this series because I think that it speaks to us here and now, as most scripture will do. And 2 Timothy reminds us of this. So let's pray, ask God to bless this time, and then we'll jump into what Solomon has to say about life. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that even in this book that can seem so dreary, and so contradictory to how we view life, Lord, you have placed it here for the growth of our maturity in Christ. Lord, as we walk through this book this spring, Lord, help us to have a good mind about our own mortality, to help us to have a good mind about the gifts that you've given us, and help us to not look past them, but to see this life as the gift that you've given and enjoy the things that you have blessed us with. Lord, ultimately, let these blessings point us to you, the good gift giver, and all that you have given us, ultimately, as we sang this morning, Christ, who came and died the death that we so rightly deserve so that we can sing, your mercy is more. Our, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more, and we can only sing that because of the truth that we find in Christ. So help us to remember that. Help us to see that through your word. Help us to see your nature and your character and the goodness that you give us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read a couple verses, uh, explain what Solomon is talking about, and then continue on. Um, so if you get confused what I'm doing, that, that is where I'm going. So starting in verse 1, Solomon writes, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So right off the bat, we see a very happy author. He opens up with this conclusion about life. Now, I want to point out that this is a conclusion of all his studies that we find in verse 13. If 
you jump down and read what it says, he said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And so this was his task, to seek out all that was done under heaven. And he comes to this conclusion. And the reason that we have the conclusion first is because in Jewish history, oftentimes the most important point was put first. It was like, think about a TV show or a movie. You see the conclusion of what has happened, and then you get to watch the character walk through as he sees this conclusion roll out. This is, this is how Solomon is writing to us. This is his conclusion in verse 3. All is vanity under the sun. Now, this phrase that we see, all is vanity, I want you to pay attention to it because we see it 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what it means here is the Hebrew word havel, H-E-V-E-L, havel. And that's translated for our English meaning meaningless. Meaningless. All is meaningless. Now, meaningless actually doesn't quite convey the intent of what Solomon is trying to write. You see, havel actually has a specific meaning in Hebrew, and that is vapor or smoke. So think about this. Um, he's using this word as if we are looking at a smokestack, right? If you're standing in front of this large fire, oftentimes there are two things that you can see in this smoke. The first is that it seems to be solid. But then the second thing is when you go to grab it, it just goes through your fingers. It is unable to be grasped. And so there's this metaphor of life being a vapor, temporary or fleeting, but also a bit of a paradox. Because as he concludes in verse 17, when we strive after life and all that is in it, it is like chasing the wind. So this is the picture that he gives us. This is his conclusion. All is vanity. All is like striving after the wind. This is a fun dude to hang out with, right? I'd love to bring him to a party. Hey, man, we're enjoying the Super Bowl today. Ah, uh, football. How vain. Like, thanks, man. You can leave. It reminds me, actually, I don't know if any of you guys watch Parks and Rec. I think most of you do, so hopefully this lands with you guys. But there's an episode where um, Andy has just missed, like, the police academy, right? And so he is super depressed, and he's working with Ben Wyatt, and Ben's like, hey, Andy, how you doing? And what does he say? I'm fine. Life is pointless. I can't sleep. I overeat. And none of my hobbies are interesting. And he just lays on the floor. <laughs> that's, that's what I think about Solomon. It's like, Solomon, how's life, man? It's fine. Life is pointless. All is vanity. The second phrase that I want you to see is found in verse 3. It's under the sun. So in his conclusion, all is vanity, but he gives us a picture of what he surveyed. Everything under the sun. And this is important for us to see because this is also used some 30 times throughout Ecclesiastes. So what Solomon is saying is he, he took his survey of the world, but not from a perspective of an ivory tower or a tower in which God looks down upon his people. He took this survey as one of us. He took this survey 
and saying, here is my foundation. Here is my framework for what I am going to try to accomplish. From life to death, from birth to the end of life, I am going to try to see what the meaning of this life is. Without any godly perspective, without any Jewish history or traditions, I'm just going to look at life as is. Or, I mean, as most commentaries will put it, as a secular scholar. He says, I've searched the course of life with this framework, and here's what I've found. Life is vanity. And I love that he searches life this way. Because he doesn't come from a framework of a formal philosopher, right? He doesn't come with a dozen different arguments about why God is or who God is, or how this even all connects to God. He comes and he enters into life's most pressing questions from life to death. He asks, is there life before we die? Can you cope without knowing where you are going? You don't have all the answers to life's enigmas, do you? Your life doesn't give you any hope of achieving more, does it? Nature doesn't seem to be able to answer all of your questions, does it? History baffles you in your attempt to try to understand life, doesn't it? He asks, you don't like to think about your own death, yet it is the most certain thing about your existence, isn't it? He comes to a level of birth to death, And he searches everything under the sun. You see, Solomon says that if you simply stay within this framework, I think that you can conclude that life is vanity. That life is meaningless. Or as Ernest Hemingway would say, life is a dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. So what we're going to do in this next 20, 30 minutes is go through these verses of his conclusion. We're going to ask the question, does the facts that he presents bear his thesis? Does he get it correct? Is what he is saying true? So if you turn with me uh, to verse 4, we're going to read to verse 11, and I, I want you to pick up on something. Maybe you already have picked up on this is the author is somewhat of a cynic. He's somewhat of a cynic. And so here's what he said. Actually, starting, let's go back to verse 3. He says this. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eyes is not, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. 
again. Just a, a fun dude to hang around. I hope that you pick up on this cynicism that he has about life. I want you to see the first thing that he starts after is the cynicism of our toil, our work. We see that in verse 3 when he says, what does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? What he's saying is life is simply this, work, 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 work. And we have plenty of songs about this, right? If you're not thinking about Rihanna right now, (laughs) are you even alive? We've got plenty of songs about working and not getting anywhere. Working for the weekend, as one lyricist would say, early Monday morning till Friday at five, I work, 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 but I don't climb, climb, climb. It's all meaningless. Or as some other singers would say, we dig up diamonds by the score of a thousand rubies, sometimes more. Actually, let me read this again. We dig up diamonds by the score, a thousand rubies, sometimes more. But we don't know what we dig them for. We dig, 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 and dig some more. Hi-ho, hi-ho. <laughs> it's home to work we go. So we see this even, even in our cartoons. They recognize the toil of work. Work, work, work. But what he's getting after in this work is the toil of the mundane repetitiveness of life. And whatever you do, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a researcher, whether you are a truck driver, a mother, you own your own business, you work for someone else, shoot, even a pastor, we fall into this toil of mundane repetitiveness. Life, and we may not like to hear this, but remember what T.S. Eliot said, life has an inherent monotony about it. And most of us know this. Most of us recognize this. Most of us find tension in this. If you think about it, tomorrow you'll get up, you'll do your same routine, whatever it might look like. You go grab coffee, you get dressed, you go to work, put in your nine to five or whatever hours you might put in. Maybe you'll go to a different place for lunch, but it's Definitely a place that you've either been to before or if you're trying something new, that new has become a routine for you. Every Tuesday, we go to a new restaurant and try something out. It's inherent monotony that we find in our life. We're creatures of habit. And the preacher is saying, you work day in and day out. You do your best, you come home, and then one day you will finally clock out. And this is life. What great news that we hear from the preacher. It reminds me of an oldie song that says, I met a man who sang the blues, and I asked him for some happy news. And he just smiled and turned away. That's, that's what the preacher is doing. He's telling us that this toil of work is meaningless. And this is why it's meaningless. He gives us an example from time tells us to look at time and see why your work seems to be meaningless. Go back to verse 4. He writes, from generation to generation, they come and they go, but what remains forever? Not your work. Not any remembrance of you. He says, the earth. 
the earth remains forever. So he says, consider the marks of time. Consider nature. You see, we may think, hey, as human beings, we develop new technology. We invent new medicine that's going to help people out. We build new schools. We build roads. And apparently in Indiana, we can't really keep them new. But we build roads. We build nations that rise and fall. And Solomon says, that's all great. But go look at nature. Go look at nature. Go walk up to a mountain and tell it what you just did. And that mountain's going to say, I was here long before this, and I'm going to be here long after this. The preacher says, no one will remember you in 100 years. No one will remember your work, but that mountain will still be there. The sun will still rise, and the sun will still set. The wind will still blow from the east to the west to the north to the south. The ocean will still fill, and the ocean will still Roll to the beach. But your work won't outlast it. What has been will always be. And what has been done will always be done. One pastor likened this toil of work to a man going to a gym and running on a treadmill. He said, we have plenty of generations that come with vigor. And they're running and running and running And they work and they work and they work and then just like they get off the treadmill, they haven't gone anywhere. But they've expended a lot of energy. And this is what Solomon's getting after. is that nature testifies that nothing of our work matters. The circular pattern we find ourselves in, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. And oftentimes, even in this meaninglessness, we feel that we get into ruts, or we find life in this mundane monotony boring. This is what Solomon's point is. This pattern of monotony is meaningless. No matter how hard you work, I mean, we know this, right? Let's just look at life. No matter how hard you work, laundry still needs to get done. Every single day. The more kids you have, the more laundry comes out. Every so often you need a haircut. Right? The bills always need to get paid. And all of this thing, all of these things, as Solomon points out, is meaningless. And in this rut, it can seem exhausting. And this is what he says in verse 8. This is the weary life that we live. Now, I do want to say that as, as Solomon says this, this truth that he portrays, that remember, he is, he is surveying life between life and death without a perspective of God, without any perspective of eternal reality. What he's saying is this is life and death without any meaning. Now, the world would teach us something different that we can remove God and yet that there were still would be meaning within life, right? We, we have this bombarded all around us. Do something with your life. Make something of yourself. Work harder and you'll just eventually get to the top and you'll be satisfied by this work. 
And Solomon's like, no, that's not true. You will never be satisfied. This task will always be weary, and it'll always find its place in vanity. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains the same. He says, within work, think about the march of time. Think about nature. And he tells us that this march of time mirrors the monotony of our own lives. Solomon here in this cynicism says that this monotony brings us to exhaustion because nothing in our lives outside of pursuing the good gifts that God has given us and remembering that they are supposed to roll past to him will ever truly satisfy. Again, this world tries to tell us that this circular monotony isn't true, that we aren't in a rut. You're not in a rut. No, you just need something new. You just need something new. And, I mean, big companies have picked up on this, right? Every year we have a new iPhone or a new Google Pixel or whatever Android you might use. Every year there's a new car that comes out. Every so often there's a new house that you need to buy. There's always something new. And the business world has picked up on these things that we feel like we find ourselves in a rut and they promise that, you know, to get yourself out of this rut, to find satisfaction, you just need something new. New house, new clothes, new wife. New, new, new. And Solomon says, this is exhausting. This is vanity. Now, even... Think about this, because I, I know that there's got to be some of us in here that, who think, you know what, I don't, I don't believe this. I am going to be the one in which gets remembered. I am going to be the one that does something better. I'll change the world. I'll, I'll be the one remembered for fill in the blank. I mean, shoot, we can even get as, as surface level as, I'm going to be the best parent there ever was, and my family will remember me for generations But this is what he says in verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things. This former things can also be translated to former people. So he gets very intentional and individual with us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Nothing is new. That promise of that new phone, that new house, that new wife, there you will not find the satisfaction you are looking for. Seems wearisome. You see, life has a huge appetite, and Solomon says that it will never be satisfied. No relationship will ever complete you. No, no matter what Jerry Maguire says, no matter what Disney movie says, you will never be fully complete in a relationship. 
There's no knowledge that can satisfy you fully. There's no theory that you can ponder on for hours and days and times that you will finally feel satisfied. There's no emotional state that you can try to get yourself to that you will finally feel full and satisfied. And so this is Solomon's conclusion. That life is vanity. That life is vanity. And the sooner that we come to these senses the greater our life can actually become. And for the sake of time, um, Dwayne's not even in here, so sorry, buddy. Um, what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to stop at verse 11. And I want to answer the question, why would we walk through this? How does this point us to Christ? And then next week what we'll take a look at is um, as Solomon breaks down the vanities of what he is seen in his conclusion of wisdom and self-indulgence and work. He breaks all three of these down in chapters one and two, the rest of it. So we'll look at that next week, but I want to answer the question here. How does this passage point to Christ? Whenever we come to the scriptures, this is the question that we should be asking, even when it seems odd. How do we find Christ in a passage like this? Well, I want to remind you of this. While Solomon may open his book by saying, vanity of vanities, while he may be a cynic towards life and all that is found between birth and death, Ecclesiastes is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And as Martin Luther says, to which I agree, the Holy Spirit is not a skeptic. He is not a cynic and he has never surrendered to despair. And this book, like all books of the Bible, do point us to Jesus. Now, how, you may ask? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 42, that there is one greater than Solomon that is here. He's talking about himself. Paul tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so all the wisdom that Solomon received all the wisdom that he used to try to look at this life and see and come to a conclusion. That wisdom is nothing in comparison to Christ, who is the wisdom of God. And while the cynic may preach that there is nothing new under the sun, as believers in Christ, we have hope and joy because we receive and are filled with new things. We are given a new name in Christ. We move from sinner to saint. We are given a new life. As Paul tells us in Galatians, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. We are given a new creation, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We are given new commandments and a new way of living for holiness. We are given a new, a new community. We are called out of the community of darkness into the community of light. And the beautiful reality is that one day in Jesus, all things will be made new. All things. Now, I want you to try to wrap your mind around this. We live in a society right now that nothing is new under the sun. I, I mean, I don't care what you bring to the table, it is not new. So we have no context of true newness. 
But Jesus says all things will be made new. There will be a time where we will live in a newness of life, fully worshiping the Lord and not without any taint of sin, not without any dusting of death that we see as a judgment from God from Genesis 3. So we will live in a new world. And this gives us hope. This is the life that we should be living, receiving the gifts that God has given us. And seeing that these gifts are good and they are to roll past the gift themselves to the gift giver, to who we worship. He gives us meaning. He gives us hope and joy in what would be a meaningless world if we were to live without an eternal perspective. So if you're here this morning and there's cynicism about this life, Hey, Solomon had some too. I invite you, just as I invite anyone else, to come and lay that cynicism down. If your cynicism or if your life has led you to trying to find satisfaction in anything but Jesus, I invite you to come and lay it down. Lay it down on Jesus, who says in Matthew 11, Come all who are weary, and I will give your soul rest. So in all of your weariness of pursuit of satisfaction in this world, Jesus says, no, come to me. Come to me and your soul will find rest. So if you're trying to find satisfaction in anywhere but Christ, I invite you to come to him. And one of the ways that we get to celebrate the truth about our new reality as believers in Christ is communion. There's a reason that we do it every week. It's not just as a reminder, but it is a celebration of our new life in Christ. That we have been made new in him. That the life he lived, the death he died, and the resurrection from the grave that seals our adoption as sons and daughters in God is a, is a celebration that we should receive each week. And it is a reminder as we come into this place of worship, it is a reminder that our sins have been forgiven, that we have been made new in Christ, and there will be one day where all things will be made new and the effects of sin will be gone. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to close in prayer, and then I'm going to ask you if you guys need to take some time just to reflect on the sermon or if you need to go to the Lord and have your own time before him, whether it's confessing sin or praising what he has done in your life. Take that. But I would plead with you, make that short. And the reason I say that make it short is because communion, again, is a celebration in which we receive the grace that God has given us through Christ's death and his blood. So let's pray, and then we can take communion together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that in Christ we have newness of life. Thank you that in Christ we have meaning. We have purpose. We have value. Because we are sons and daughters of God. This, this world is not meaningless to us. It is it's a moment in time before we get to the glory in heaven. And so, Lord, 
help us as we walk through Ecclesiastes to see that this life, while short and as well setting us up for the glory in heaven, it, we do have these gifts. And we can praise you for these gifts of good friends, good food, good drink, good, good labor. That we can recognize that outside of our eternal perspective, life would be meaningless. But in this new family, in this new life in Christ, life is not. And so we praise you for that, Lord. Help us to learn more of you as we go through this book. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at